This episode of Bring Back V10s is brought to you by F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality and travel programme of Formula One. Official ticket packages are available now for the season-ending Abu Dhabi Grand Prix in December, so you can witness the last race of the year in style. I'm Glenn Freeman, and with me this time is Scott Mitchell. Scott, we've been scanning the range of packages on offer for the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, and if you were allowed to skip work for that weekend to enjoy the race with F1 experiences, what would you make sure you did while you were there? Well, I had a I had a bit of a look through what they have to offer, and I was super tempted to go for a, even a virtual garage tour is super cool. So. Uh, if it, even if you can't do the real thing, going behind the scenes virtually is always interesting. But I would, I, I've decided I'd have to pick something that gives me the chance for the championship trophy photo because back in 2016, I was about a foot away from Nico Rosberg and his championship trophy, and I came so close to leaning in sneakily behind his back to take a selfie, and I chickened out at the last minute. So I, I need to rectify that. So that's that's what I'd be going for. Something that offered me that opportunity. Well, that sounds like the perfect way to put it right. There's so much to choose from. I, I was finding it quite difficult to decide. But then I saw a video that we got to upload onto the race website showing the, the panoramic views that are on offer from what they call the Champions Club. And for Abu Dhabi, not necessarily a circuit you think of as scenic. The view looked incredible. So I'd be plonking myself there and treating myself to some hospitality and some good trackside views. But that's what we'd go for. To find out more and to book your own F1 experience, visit f1experiences.com. Did you miss us? It's time to finish Series 3 of Bring Back V10s after a short break. And as always, we've got two episodes dedicated to your questions about F1 from 1989 to 2005 to see us to the end. Apologies for going missing for a couple of weeks and thank you to everyone who asked how my house move went. I'm happy to report that almost all of the boxes are unpacked and most of the leaky taps and pipes have been dealt with. But let's not waste any more time talking about that. You've waited long enough for the first of our finale episodes. And to thank you for your patience, we're going to cram in even more questions than we usually do. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, to tackle the first set of questions we've picked out are Mark Hughes and ex-F1 technical director, Gary Anderson. So Gary, welcome back to Bring Back V10s. As usual, when we have you on at the end of the series, we found a few Jordan-related questions for you. So which question are you most looking forward to? One of those or something completely different? Uh, well, something completely different, but I think quite fitting. Um, I suppose really with the controversy we had last year with uh, with the Racing Point and the Mercedes, I think the Ligier and the, and the Benetton question is going to be quite an interesting one. Yeah, we got asked that more than once, so that question is definitely going to be fun. Uh, Mark Hughes, what about you? What's what's caught your eye in this longer list than usual? Um, somebody's asked a question about my favourite driver, so I'm looking forward to that. Excellent. We'll find out who that is shortly. I think I have an idea of who it might be, but let's get on with it. All of these questions either came from people using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or submitting a question along with a five-star podcast review, which we really appreciate. So we'll do a quick shout out to some of our reviewers as the support you all show us does mean a lot. So thank you to Sean518848, Burger and Alacy, Jeff17, The Cool Parent, The Shaded Gamer and Smith 303 as I say every week, there are more of you leaving reviews than we can keep up with on these shout outs. And we're totally blown away by your support. But let's crack on and get some questions answered. 
Mark, the first question is from Brendan, who asks, was Justin Wilson a huge loss to F1? And why wasn't he given a proper chance with Jaguar? I would love to have seen Justin have a, um, a better crack at Formula One. Um, he came in in 2003 with Minardi and he looked fantastic in that. It was a, an outclass car, but he did very similar things in it to what Fernando Alonso had done a couple of years before and Mark Webber did the, the year after and um, would get it a little bit further up the grid than it should have been and then would make um, some fantastic passing moves on the, the opening lap and you'd quite often see him come past end of the first lap half, halfway up the field, which was ridiculous and it would, wouldn't be able to stay there. But it, it just showed you that he had such great natural racecraft and he he was able to always know where to place the car in, in traffic and he was renowned for doing the big overtakes. He was, um, he was a fantastic race driver. Um, and he got a chance halfway through the season to get in the Jaguar uh, alongside Mark Webber. And it, it didn't really work out there. Um, Webber was absolutely knitted into that team by then. And, and it, he, he's such a competitive, intense character. He wouldn't have been <laughs> extending a helping hand, let's say. The, the, the team took its lead from Mark and he was a very inspiring character. Justin was more uh, happy-go-lucky, passive, very talented, but different sort of personality. Um, so, yeah, the car didn't really... He uh, wasn't as at home in it um, as, as he had been in the, in the Minardi, let's say. And Mark was very, very uh, good at actually getting the last little bit from it in qualifying, and he was very, very fast, so over one lap. Um, then... Yeah, so he didn't quite do enough to, to make it a no-brainer that he was retained. And when Ford decided at the end of the year that it had enough of spending a fortune and instructed the team to take on a sponsored driver alongside Weber uh, for 2004, so we got the Red Bull-sponsored Christian Clean. It wasn't a bad driver, um, but it, it just meant that Justin's F1 chance was sort of over before it barely really started, and it was such a shame. Yeah, I think, you know, whenever you consider that he only had four races in the Jaguar at the end of the season, and, you know, he did finish eighth uh, in one of those, and, and that was no easy task because during the season, Weber had three sixths and four sevens. So, you know, he, he fit it in there quite well. But the one thing you have to remember was, I think, I think he was six foot three. Um, and in those days, the cars themselves, they didn't have a limit, um, a regulation as far as the cockpit opening is concerned from the, from the driver's seat back to the front bulkhead. Now they do have that minimum distance but then they didn't so any tall driver you know you reach six foot six foot one and it definitely became a compromise so you know I genuinely think that if Justin had had a chance to establish himself and then a team whatever the team would be would build a car for the next year that would comp wouldn't compromise his his seating position so much then uh, you know I think there was a step to, for him to take there but jumping into the Jaguar would have been very very difficult for him again you know, Weber's not small, but Justin Wilson was just that bit taller. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the environment. It's that little home office that you're sitting in, and, and it needs to be as good as possible. And, uh, you know, jumping in for two, four races with a t different team is never a good opportunity to really show your true potential. So I think he was very talented. People that worked with him in the States after his Formula 1 campaign, you know, rated him very, very highly. Um, and there's no difference. Racing racing's racing, you know, whether it's IndyCars or whether it's uh, Formula 1. If you've got the talent, you've got the talent. 
Now, going from a driver who only got one season in F1 to a driver who never quite raced in F1, but there was a lot of curiosity around this man. We received a few questions about Valentino Rossi testing with Ferrari and if it ever could have led anywhere. Uh, Paul Glover and Daniel Pryor were two of the people to ask about this. Mark, Paul says, how close did Valentino Rossi come to driving for Ferrari in F1? Could he have actually raced for them? They flirted with each other, let's say, um, over over several years. Um, I think the closest it got was probably 2007 when he did a proper serious test um, alongside, um, no, it must have been 2006, alongside Michael. And um, But they they never quite committed. I, I don't, I never got the sense that uh, Valentino was totally convinced it's what he wanted to do. It would have been a very big commitment. He had plenty of talent, though. I mean, he was he was, he was quick. Um, you know, even um, just just using Michael as a as a comparison, it was it was less than a second. We don't know if that was like for like, but he was sort of in the ballpark for someone that it was really um, an alien um, sport for. So I think it would have needed a bit more um, a bit more serious intent to, to actually make it happen. Um, Look at Don Zamolo was talking about if he, he was very much wanting, he was pushing the idea of um, third cars for the big teams. And his big thing was if, if Ferrari was allowed to run a third car, he would, look, he would love to put Valentino Rossi in it. Um, and I think that was probably would have been his best opportunity. But that, of course, uh, that was never passed that. That um, it was never uh, rubber stamped that that would be okay to, to run a third car. Um, so, yeah, I, I think ultimately it was probably Valentino who shied away from it. And I think if he'd wanted to make it happen, um, he could have made it happen. Um, and it just it just wasn't quite to be. Yeah, I, I also think that he was at a time in his bike career where it was just too good. You know, he was he was having to decide not only the fact that he liked the motor racing, but it was he was enjoying the bikes and he was very, very successful. So he was at a point of... A major decision you know potentially drop all that success i mean what would he have been then 25 or something um so i suppose it's you know it was at the height of his his bike career and he just needed to to take the best out of that really he'd put a lot of effort into his bike career so big decision to change it's you know like a golfer that was very good at playing golf deciding to go and play tennis um yeah they both got a ball but uh at the end of the day it's, it's, it's actually quite different so i think he made the right decision because it would never have been easy for him, um, but he's never been frightened of a challenge. So, it'd been lovely to see him do even, you know, some more testing, guest testing, proper testing with a big mix of cars around him to see really how he could have uh, unfolded his true talent. But we'll never see that now, I don't think. No, it would have been it would have been great. And to be fair to Valentino, he did he's won many more races and a few more championships since deciding not to do it. So, I don't think we can criticise the decision. Now, Gary, got a question here from Graham Horner. Graham asks, what if Damon Hill had signed for Jordan in 97? I've always thought the 197 was a great car with two inexperienced drivers. Those, of course, being Ralph Schumacher and Giancarlo Fisichella. Uh, Graham says, would Damon have won races in 97 due to his greater experience? What do you think, Gary? The 197, I know, is a car you're very proud of. Could Damon have got it over the line if he joined... In 97 instead of 98? Um, yeah, I think he would have done, to be honest. You know, we lost some races um, due to 
our own inexperience and you know the the two new drivers um inexperience uh argentina you know basically we were on in line there for a good podium finishes anyway you know and with damon i brought that little bit extra uh and again in germany uh, it was it was very close but just just the pressure i think got to fizzy a little bit and also you know he got a puncture in the end of the day running over uh, a bit of an engine from Ke- magnuson's uh uh, forward engine that blew up in the Stewart. So it was, you know, when it's not to be, it's not to be. But I think what Damon would have brought in 97 to us would have been, was better than what he probably brought to us in 98 because he had had that rundown year, um, almost one in Hungary, obviously, for, for Wilkinshaw. But then it was about keeping going as opposed to trying to replace what he had at Williams the year before. You know, coming to Jordan in 97 would have been very good for him because he would have jumped into a pretty decent car i believe um but it wasn't to be and you know it's the old effing butt of of uh, motorsport isn't it what if this had happened um I, I would like to have seen it happen and i'd like to have seen one one mature driver in there against uh one of the with one of the youngsters as well instead of two youngsters but at the end of the day we had what we had and they did a great job and it was a very enjoyable season because the, the car was a major step forward from the 96 car so it was nice to see that it was nice to see the drivers get in there and really wring its neck yeah a few mistakes were made but that's life i suppose we all make them and i'm going to put a follow-up question to you here that relates slightly to that 96 car because recently we had jonathan williams on the show and he told a story that when sam michael moved from jordan to williams he said that if nigel mansell had tested the 97 jordan rather than the 96 car that he ran in december of that year Sam Michael reckons Mansell would have made a comeback with Jordan. Now, Gary, you and Ed Straw have talked about that Mansell test in the past, and I'm sure we'll come back to it in the future. But do you think that would the 97 car have been such a step from the 96 that Nigel might have thought, actually, I do fancy this? Yeah, it was actually a massive step. I mean, the first test we did was uh, Hareth, I think it was, Ralph Schumacher. And uh, Ralph was there with the 96 car just getting some miles in it during the, the winter. Um, and we, the 97 car arrived, he got into it, and within five laps, he was over a second faster. So the car was a completely different beast, to be honest. Um, the engine package from Persia was, was a, a stepped improvement, but the chassis itself was a was a chassis that made sense, I think you might call it. You know, we threw away a lot of stuff in 97 by just... Try, we tried to be too clever, I think, on a few things um, and not really didn't really get the best out of the car at a lot of races. And I think Nigel, if he had done a back-to-back, um, he would have seen that step and he would have believed in us that we could keep on making that step. Uh, and I suppose instead of us making mistakes because of our two new drivers, either either Damon Hill or, or Nigel, would have been a stabilising influence for us to, show, to, to sort of help us not go the wrong route. But... Um, Nigel was great, and the, in the '96 car, you know, Ralph was there with him, and Nigel, in, within ten laps, was quicker than Ralph um, on that morning. But then he he had to come in for a cup of tea because his hands were cold, and uh, yeah, he never really went any quicker. But you know, at the end of the day, he he did what he wanted to do. He wanted to get in a car, drive it hard, and see where he really was. And I think the minute he did that, and he saw actually this is okay, I'm all right here. I'm not, you know, I haven't lost anything, but I don't want to do it again. I think that was his big decision, and he had he had two cups of tea. Now, we've already talked about Mark Webber once in this episode, but let's ask a more specific question about him. Rachel Fleming asks, would Mark Webber have challenged for the World Championship if he'd picked Renault 
over Williams. Now, Mark, you always had a pretty good handle on Weber's career. Did he do himself out of a world championship with the decision he made in the mid 2000s? <laughs> Maybe. He was very, I mean, he had the chance to go to Enston, um, where he would have been paired with Fernando Alonso in um, 2005 and six, which is the the year that the, the Renault won the championships with Alonso. So, yeah, he could have been there and he, he turned that down. It, they were both managed by the same guy, Flavio Briatore. So it made sense for Briatore to, to bring them both into the fold of the, the team that he was running. But um, the decision was Mark's to make and he just didn't fancy going up against Alonso. He, he had enormous respect and regard for Alonso as a competitor. And I think you saw that. And then whenever they got together, wheel to wheel, they were... Very, very close. Remember that um, when they were went through a rouge together with about you know fag fag paper with between their their wheels, um, and many many others. Like um, we talked about uh, Suzuka two thousand and five when uh, Weber had Alonso on the grass getting wheel spin in Top Gear. So they 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 were very very competitive with each other, um, but I don't think Weber fancied going in to what was already Alonso's team and he just didn't think that was the the route to the world championship and he thought that being the team leader at Williams which was not that long since had been a championship contending team back in 03 um, he was going there in 05 I think he felt that that was probably a better route and on paper it, it probably looked it um, given, given those two situations but um, Williams was a team that was probably on the way down really by then. It was it was wrestling with its its own history really rather than adapting to the to the future. And um that that was a relationship that never really gelled. And he could look back and think, yeah, maybe I should have given it a go at, at Renault. And we we'll never know. So would he have been a championship contender? Um yeah, possibly. But I I don't think as a an all round package he would have um I think he would have found Fernando just a little bit too much of a handful. Richard Johnston has a question specifically about V10 engines. He says, we had 16 years of V10s, much longer than the subsequent engine formulas. Were manufacturers still getting gains from engine, the engines at the end? Were there any signs that they were getting close to the limits of the technology? But Mark, I'll throw this one to you first because... At the end of the V10 era, we just started having the, the longer life engine requirements. But performance-wise, were the manufacturers anywhere near that, that glass ceiling? We kept waiting for it because for years we'd been told that the theoretical limit was 19,000 RPM. But clearly it wasn't because by 2005, Cosworth, BMW were, were pushing 21,000 revs. Um, and it just kept creeping up and up and up. And there was still performance being found, uh, which was quite amazing, but it was from an ever more specialized discipline, if you like, with, with no real carryover for the automotives that was taking them off in a different development direction that didn't really translate into the automotive side. But it was, it was fascinating. It was all out. It is like, you know, an arms, um, an arms war, just, just absolutely flat out. But, um, yeah, that was, I guess. <laughs> I guess it was sensible that they, they started imposing limitations on it because the teams were probably going to go bust if, um, if it just carried on. 
So it was it was a very exciting time, and no, there there was no sign yet that they we were reaching the sort of um, marginal gains. We still seem to be making big gains. Yeah, I mean anything that got is, is all about pushing the engineering challenge. Every time you, you turn a corner with the chassis or the car, you learn something new. You adapt some new materials into the the package. You can run the revs a little bit higher, or the fuel gets better. The combustion chamber gets better, so you can actually make a a shorter stroke, bigger bore, and still get the part the the fuel to burn on the piston area. You know, it's all just incremental steps whenever you get to that point. And it's exactly the same right now. You know, very very different from what we got now, but it's still all incremental steps. You know, they're still they're still moving forward. Mercedes, you know, will have a better package this year than they had last year as far as the engine the power units concerned, as we call it now. The Honda definitely have. Ferrari, I'm pretty sure have. So they're all just making those incremental steps, and as you do that, you learn something new. So um, I don't think it would ever it'll ever stop. The, the The returns get smaller for sure, um, but they were great engines. You know, one of those things singing along at twenty thousand, twenty one thousand RPM was it was just mega. To be honest, absolutely mega. Uh, you know, I, I suppose you could say we missed them, but we missed them for a different reason. They used to hurt you. You know, whenever you're standing in the pit lane, if you didn't have your earplugs in, they actually hurt you. So um maybe maybe they should have been banned maybe we should have gone the route we are but at the end of the day there's nothing like one of those if if you ever start one up in the pit lane and, and run it around the track as alonso did last year i think the renault you know people will stand up and look at it because it is a racing car it is it is a racing engine it's a racing noise you know just just sucks you in like like nothing else yeah it was it was phenomenal and i remember during that era when people would go to see an F1 car in action for the first time, the thing they would comment on almost before the speed and any other sensations you get from watching trackside was always the sound. People always said the sound, the noise. And yeah, I mean, I didn't take your advice, Gary. I, d- I didn't wear my earplugs when I was trackside as a fan back at Silverstone and even Imola once back in the day. And my, uh, my hearing is, well, the state of my ears has certainly paid the price for that. I think I have pretty bad hearing for a 35 year old. But let's move on to another Jordan-related question. Andy Villa GB, one of our many reviewers, asks, if the 2003 Brazilian GP had run the full distance, did Fisichella have to pit again for fuel? And if so, where would he have finished? Now, Gary, we will definitely do a full episode on this race in the future because as well as the amazing Jordan victory, there was so much else going on at the time. But in terms of Jordan's clever strategy to brim the tank earlier in the race, without the red flag bringing things to a close early, what would have happened to Fissy Keller? Um, well, the old question of, uh, of if it's F1 backwards, but uh, who knows, I suppose, is the answer. We, we did our calculations based on the lap time that we would be doing if it was wet. And based on the lap time that it, you know, the, the cars would have done, in the wet, if there had been no red flags and stuff, the race would, would still have got stopped. We just to run the two hours, you know, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have gone over too far. So although we had a calculation, I think it was lap fifty four or something that we could get to with a full tank of fuel. Um, when the race was red flagged at that point in time, that was the two third race distance. Um, we would have had enough fuel in it to have gone to. I think it was lap sixty two or sixty four. So we could have got a bit more out of it, um, but we would have had to stop at some point in time if the race went the complete distance. But we didn't think it would go the complete distance because of the of the slow lap times. So there was two a twofold solution there. One was it got stopped early because of um, basically everybody just getting bored, 
because it was constant, you know, safety car crash, safety car crash, so on and so forth. And you can only do that for so long. You know, you can't just keep on going all afternoon. Everybody was soaking. It was cold. It was, you know, you were wet. You were wet through from head to foot. Um, and also the fact, as I say, the lap times dictated that the uh, the risk probably wouldn't have run its full its full distance. It would run its full time. So again, it's impossible to know what would have happened. We would have had to stop again for fuel. And uh, I doubt if we would have been able to have uh, won it from there. So we, we, we bought a lottery ticket and it was the right numbers on it. So uh, that's all I can say at this point in time. Yeah, I think it paid off. And and even if, if Jordan hadn't won the race, based on how good or should I say bad that car was, you were in for a better result than you'd have got if you'd done the same as everybody else. Yeah, you, you are. I mean, as I say, you, you can only try and take your set, of, your set of circumstances in front of you and try and come up with the best solution possible to do something. Um, the car was, was never a great package, but it, um, you know, again, it, it was probably better than the results that we got out of it. Um, it wouldn't have caught fire on that lap that it did when it came out of the pits because that was just a, there was an oil, an, an oil storage tank that basically you had to put more oil into the tank. Uh, because of the way the um, the engine was consuming oil, um, and basically it was a plastic pipe that a tie wrap had come undone and it had fallen onto the exhaust pipe whenever he stopped in the pit lane because it just all got a bit too hot. But that wouldn't have happened if the car had been kept kept running. It just happened because he stopped in the pit lane with it all you know boiling its brains out. So, so um, it melted the, the tie wrap, the pipe fell onto the exhaust pipe, the oil was in the pipe, caught fire. So. Um, it would have been good to see, but you know, we achieved the goal of 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 giving ourselves an opportunity to do something, and that opportunity came our way. So you've got to you've got to take it and, and say, yeah, we did all right that day. Now, Mister Wapajif has a great question because he's come up with a way for us to talk about Gilles Villeneuve. So, Mark, the question quite simply is: When do you think Gilles would have retired had he survived beyond 1982? And the way. Mr. Wapajif has made this a bring back V10's question is he says, would he have been battling Senna for titles by 1989? So what do you reckon, Mark? Map out the rest of the 80s for Gilles Villeneuve. <laughs> this, this is the question I was referring to earlier on. I thought it might be. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's one of the great what ifs. Um, he was the fastest driver of his time and he'd uh, resolved that he was leaving Ferrari at the end of 82 because uh, he didn't feel supported by the team in the fallout from Imola when he'd uh, uh, had the falling out with Peroni. So he was he was off and he was going to be a, a hot property on the market. Uh, Ron Dennis had been trying to recruit him to McLaren for a good couple of years by then. And logically, I think that's where he would have ended up. Um, he would have ended up alongside Lauder there in 83. Uh, he would have probably replaced uh, Watty, John Watson. Um, so that would have put him in a Cosworth car in the time that the, the turbos were um, dominating, but he would have been in the perfect place to get the McLaren Porsches for 84, 85. So um, my hunch is that he would have been um, a lot quicker than Nicky at that stage of Nicky's career and it probably would have brought about Nicky's retirement a bit earlier. Um, which, you know, you you then say, well, would would there have ever been a, a place for Prost at the end of 83 if, uh, if Lauder and Villeneuve were there? Maybe not. Maybe they'd gone to Lotus or something like that. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just one of those what-ifs. He would have been definitely sitting in, um, if, if he'd gone to McLaren, which was the most likely, which was the most logical option, given it was the, 
probably the best team available, had great prospects, and Ron Dennis was trying very hard to recruit him, so why wouldn't he have gone there? Then, yes, I think um, he would have blown the uh, nonsense idea that he couldn't have won titles because of the way he was uh, out of the water because he would have won titles there, I'm sure. Um, would he have still been around to, to, by 89? Uh, he would have been 38 years old then. So, yeah, I guess he would have been. I, I, I can't imagine that he... He would actually have retired. I think it would have. He would have just hung on until Formula One retired him, and then he would have gone and done something else, um, some other form of racing. I, I guess he was just mad for it. So yeah, I think um, there would have been a fascinating overlap between him and Senna, probably mid mid to late eighties, definitely. The the interesting thing there, I was I was at the other end of the scale on, on the Villeneuve uh, career. I, I did the first test at Silverstone with him in the McLaren. Um, and you know you could see from lap one it was a bit like Michael Schumacher when he t when he drove the Jordan you know he did a, a shakedown test at Silverstone around the South Circuit and Michael you could see from lap one that he was he just had some some talent that uh, I'd never seen before and Villeneuve was the same you know he just he just went out and he never you know he never thought that he was just new in Formula One he just knew how to do it and uh, very quick from lap one so uh, been interesting to have seen if he'd had. I think he needed needed a team like William or like um, McLaren to go to really to try to pull him into line a little bit. He had the talent, he had the speed, he had everything, but he probably didn't quite have the discipline. And I think uh, going to a, a team that had a, a management structure as opposed to Ferrari, that discipline might have been pulled into him a little bit. That you know it was all about getting to the checkered flag. Um, you know he had some fantastic drives. I think it was Harama. What eighty two was it? Eighty one. I think he eighty one. Um, I was there and watching that race, and you know, it was just it shouldn't have been, but it was, and he did. So somebody could have disciplined him to do that every weekend. Uh, it would have been just amazing what the end result would have been. Mark's what Mark said has now got me thinking. He was talking about him racing on and on and on, and then what would he have done afterwards? So I've decided he would have gone to IndyCar in the early nineties, and then we'd have had the Andrettis and the Villeneuves. Mm. Uh, yeah. In, Fantastic. in in championship at the same time. So uh, <laughs> there you go. We got Jacques mentioning, even though there's no questions about him. Uh, but let's move on. Uh, Mark, we, we're coming forward towards the end of, of our era with this next one because the question from T. Sean Busy uh, is about the F2004 Ferrari stunning car from the year with the same name. Uh, the question is, what made the F2004 so dominant? Was it really that much better than the rest, or did everybody else fall off a cliff? Oh, what was what was so good about it? A, a aero, uh, engine, uh, custom tyre development with Bridgestone, Michael Schumacher, Ross Braun, Rory Byrne, John Tott. Um, all a few focused. things then. <laughs> yeah, good ingredients. <laughs> and actually, that. Wait, wait, what, Mark Mark, why don't we start with what was bad about it? Yeah, I can't. I can't because think of probably, anything, can you? The, the list would probably be a lot shorter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the it was the fully resolved reaction to the late notice park firmer regulations that had been introduced in two thousand and three, which had caught Ferrari out because they had made a a long car on the assumption that you would still continue to be able to change the weight distribution in between um, qualifying and race, and it give the give the not enough weight on the front for, for qualifying. Um, so they did a shorter car for 04, and, which had the ideal weight distribution for the Park Fermi regulations. And therefore, what you were seeing really was just a continuation of its actual position, more like 2002 had been 
without the artificial handbrake of the regulations. Um, that said, BMW were hurt by the new engine regs. They, they didn't go ahead with what was going to be a, a, a sensational new engine um, because of the uh, mileage uh, limits that were being going to be applied. Um, McLaren was struggling with a bit of technical infighting with um, Adrian and the management there. So they, they, it's true, they weren't at their absolute peak, those two teams, and they, they probably should have been um, punching a bit harder than they were. But I mean, if, you, if you bring that bunch of people together and you, you give them an unlimited budget, they, they, why wouldn't they be as dominant as they were? They were just, it was the standard, it was the absolute gold standard of the time. Yeah, if I, if I had to pick one, well, not one part of it, I suppose it's impossible to pick one part of it. I think the relationship they built with Bridgestone was second to none. Um, I mean, during 2003, um, it was it was very good as well. As you say, they, they suffered because of the part Fermi rule situation. But, um, you know, during 2003, as a, as a Bridgestone team, we got what you got. Whereas, you know, we, we wouldn't get... We, we, we tested a couple of times on Ferrari tires, mainly because Bridgestone needed some more mileage on them. And the difference was incredible. We had a very good tire in what we had. We had a copy of the tire that, that uh, Ferrari used, but the materials used in it were all different and much, much cheaper. The, the Ferrari tires were a much more expensive solution to the, the sidewall stiffness. And hence the weight of the tire was different. The structure of the tire was different. But mainly coming from the different materials. It's a bit like when we're talking about the V10s and you know, material technology improves and improves and improves. But it does get more and more expensive with that. So it's the same for any part of, of a racing car, any part of anything. And it was the same for the tires at that point in time. The, the technology was was improving dramatically. But as production basis, you know, Bridgestone wouldn't use it in older tires. So they had a big advantage there. But again, you know, they had a, a very sound group of people all working in the same direction and as you say more importantly with an unlimited budget and uh, they achieved their goals 15 wins in the season you know 13 to michael schumacher and two to uh, to barrichello is a, a pretty good run yeah it's a phenomenal car and i think that even if williams and mclaren did have their acts together that year uh, they still wouldn't have beaten that car that was of course the year of the the famous walrus williams which we will do an episode on in the future and McLaren started the year with what they called the MP4-19, but as we learned in our MP4-18 episode, Adrian Newey says the car at the start of 04 was just the abandoned 03 car with what he's called a new sticker on it. But let's follow up on this a bit more and let's mention the 2002 car again, because in that original question, uh, T. Sean Busy asked which was the better overall package, the F2002 or the F2004 Gary, you can go first because I sometimes feel that the F2002 gets overlooked because two years after it, this another sensational car came along. Does one or the other stand out for you? Well, uh, yeah, I think, you know, they're, they're all from the same group of people, I suppose you might call it. Um, 2002 was, again, that had 15 wins in the season, so they're equal on terms as far as that's concerned. Um, you have to except that that group of people will only learn more and keep it all going together. So 2002, I think, was a learning curve for 2004. And that's why we look at 2004 saying it was so good, but they learned a lot during 2002. They probably weren't as closely in bed with Bridgestone in 2002 as they were in 2004, but they learned about all that. And that's why sort of the, the 2004 car, I think, just looks like it's, it was better. But I think both of them, I'd, I'd be very happy to be behind uh, either one of those two cars 
but you know Michael at that point in time was a phenomenal driver as well. He just he just had that that belief and faith in the whole thing. And you know, just again, as Mark said earlier, the unlimited budget always helps. You know, we were always fighting for the last few pounds to save here and there, or whatever. But you know, they didn't have to think about that side of it. And Ross was always very good as well at at um, manipulating the grey area of the regulations to get the best out of it to suit himself. Um, it was one of those situations. I'm not sure. I'm not saying they ever, they ever went past the grey area, but they were always able to find the grey area and make sure there was grey areas there that would help Ferrari. I think he'll admit that himself. That was his his task. That was his job. So um, at the end of the day, that that group were able to you know achieve the goal with the 2002 car and the 2004 car. So 2003 was a bit of a blip in the middle, but it still didn't do too bad. Yeah, it's okay if you win a championship uh, in your blip year. But Mark, what do you think? How do you compare the F2002 and the F2004? Two two great cars. I, I guess the 2004 just edges it. It was a sort of more refined version of the same idea, really, um, after they'd backed out of the, uh, the the concept of the 2003 because it had been made obsolete. Um, yeah, it, I mean, two Two, two sensational cars, and it was really just a continuation of the same program, really. Let's bring in another sensational car and keep the comparison theme going, because we also had a question from Herr Laurens, who said, which was the most dominant car of the V10 era, the F2004 or the Williams FW14B, which of course was Nigel Mansell's 1992 car? So where do you go with that, Mark? Are you looking purely at the stats, or is there another way to interpret which car was more dominant? The, the the Williams introduced a completely new technology, you know, that the, the, the others didn't have, um, or didn't hadn't developed it in, to the to the same peak. So you you were comparing almost like a new generation car to um, previous generation cars. It was that it was that big a leap. So it was enormous. You, you could. There were certain circuits in 92 where if you qualified two seconds off the Williams or off Nigel Mansell's Williams, you'd be third on the grid. You know, it was just ridiculous how, how dominant that car was. So in terms of its performance advantage over everything else, the Williams was more dominant. But in the Ferrari was more of a an exploitation to the nth degree of a, of a more... Uh, restrictive set of regulations and so you couldn't get the, the same probably lap time dominance from it although they they did manage to find a big big advantage uh, given how restrictive the regulations were so um, it was a more rounded package it was a more rounded team it was a bigger team a better finance team so the end result the, the Ferrari was um, in terms of, if you look at the, the record book it would be the Ferrari but in terms of just how much faster than everything else it was the Williams. Yeah, I think I think the Williams was one of those cars where you you know as you, as you said there, Mark Nigel Mansell's Williams. I think it was a Nigel Mansell Williams for sure. It's a bit like uh, what we see now with the Max Verstappen uh, Red Bull. You know, you you had to commit to it. You had to commit to that car. Not every driver could do it. Um, and Nigel, you know, if if Patrick Head would tell him something, Nigel would believe it and go out there and do it. And you know, I, mem- I remember the big debate about telling Nigel that you know, if he goes, the faster he goes through cops, the more grip he'll have, so the faster he can go. And, you know, <laughs> he goes and goes faster through cops because that's what he was told today. So uh, it's about that belief in it. You know, if it's there, it comes with it. And so many drivers, 
you know, don't drive the car they've got. They upset the car quite a lot. And this is where left foot braking and uh, come into play because lots of people, you know, whenever left foot braking started to be the big thing, lots of people would use the left foot braking, but to slow the car down. But the good guys were using it actually to keep the balance of the car through a corner. And like cops at that point in time, you know, it was one of those things where Michael Schumacher would tell Ralph Schumacher, you know, you just have to kiss the, the brake, the left, your left foot on the brakes going through the corner, just keep it in seventh gear and it's flat through there. But Ralph wouldn't do that. He would, he would, he'd put the brakes on at the wrong time. All Michael was doing was just putting a little bit of brake on it to stop the oversteer because the, you know, you take the, the drive out of the rear wheels. So it was about using it as a, as a tool to drive the car as opposed to a thing to stop the car. And uh, Nigel would do that. And I think Nigel would listen to people who had designed the car and understood what the, how they went about the design of the car, and he would drive it to suit that. And that, that's, a, that's a very big thing. The same as Max Verstappen right now does with the, uh, with the Red Bull. He drives the car to the condition that the sort of designers have decided to put the concept around. That's very important. We'll stick with Williams for this next question, because if 92 was the start of the team's 90s dominance, then 97 into 98 was the end of it, and Chris United 93 actually sent us enough questions for an episode of his own, which was incredible. But uh, the subject we're going to pick up from all of those questions is about Williams's fall from grace in 98. So Chris asked a couple of questions around this where he said, if Adrian Newey had stayed at Williams, would their 98 car have been less of a disaster? And could it have been in contention with Mechachrome engines? And then he followed up saying, and if Renault didn't pull out at the end of 97, would the loss of Newey still have had an impact even with a works engine? And then from our reviews, MPHGB81 sums it up quite well, simply saying, what hurt Williams most in 1998? Was it Newey leaving or Renault pulling out? So Mark, what do you reckon? Uh, they're both very serious blows. Um, I would say long term, uh, the biggest blow was probably the, the loss of Adrian because you can always get another... Um, automotive engine manufacturer, but you can't just go and get another Adrian. So, um, but they were both very big blows. Um, the 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 loss of uh, Renault as a, as a works um, sort of partner, if you like, meant that that engine was no longer being developed. It was it was essentially frozen. While Mercedes and Ferrari were on a very very fruitful development program, and I think. Their ninety by the end of ninety eight, they were probably running an extra hundred horsepower to, to the where they'd been at the end of ninety seven. You know, was that um, aggressive a development program as they both poured money into it? So you you were never going to have made that up just just from the chassis, but um, taking a double hit, obviously, it went they went from dominance in ninety seven to nowhere in ninety eight, and that that was just. It came at a bad time as well because of reg major regulation changes for 98 and then they, they really needed to be fully exploited. So there was a lot of uh, low-hanging fruit there probably and Adrian would have been absolutely perfect for that and uh, instead he was uh, doing a similar thing for McLaren. Yeah, it was quite funny, you know, 97 to 98, it was a, a big, a big, big change. And I mean, we went through, as everybody did, many, many steps of wheelbase. You know, you were moving the front wheels forward five centimetres or something one weekend and you were moving them back five centimetres next weekend and moving the rear end back and it just it was a nightmare trying to get the get back in terms with the uh, with the tire change um patrick head's been renowned for sort of 
been able to shout over most Grand Prix cars. He's, he's fairly loud when he tries to say something. And I remember hearing him, you know, this is on the grid, and I remember saying, Jeff, Jeff, where are you? And it was uh, Jeff Willis, who was the chief aerodynamist at the time. And uh, I was listening to them just out of curiosity. Jeff, it's underbody airflow. That's what we've missed. Underbody airflow, Jeff, that's where it all lies nowadays. And, you know, in reality, it was right, because at that point in time, what you had was a, you know, an engine and a chassis and some radiators in the side pods and a bodywork over the top of it. And now these current cars, because of underbody airflow, they've, they've got a bodywork underneath the bodywork. So basically, you're trying to, you know, optimize that efficiency of cooling so much more. And the more optimum you get that, uh, the more downforce you can create out of the car, as opposed to just having a, a big hole at the back of the car. Now it's all it's all ducted within itself. So, Jeff, um, Patrick was was really right. You know, underbody airflow, Jeff. Underbody airflow. That's where the, that's where our problems are. He was totally committed to it. <laughs> I'm sure exactly what Jeff Willis needed on the grid was to be bellowed at with what he'd got wrong with that car. Our next question is from Danny Hoare and Mark, he asks, would you say the 2000 Japanese Grand Prix is underrated due to the dominance of Ferrari in the years that followed? Title on the line and the conditions were tricky as they come. This was, of course, the race where Michael Schumacher finally won his first championship for Ferrari. And it's a, it's a nail-biting thriller, isn't it, between Michael and, and Mika Hakkinen and with a bit of drizzle around uh, one of the pit stops and towards the end. So... Do you think it does maybe get forgotten because of where it placed in what became Ferrari's dominance of the early 2000s? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, it was actually the, the, the actual pivot point. You could almost say that race was the actual pivot point between the, the McLaren era and then the, the beginning of the end of the McLaren era and the beginning of the Ferrari era. And um, that, that whole season was fought out very, very closely between Hakkinen and Schumacher. First, one of them would be leading the championship, then the other. Um, and then it, it came to that race and Mika took the early lead, chased by Michael, and they were both head and shoulders faster than everybody else, left everybody else well behind. It was just the most fantastic way to decide a, a title, just a flat-out scrap between the two best drivers, and they were the two best drivers of that time. And, um, yeah, it, it all hinged on the timing of the, the pit stop, so Mika came in first, um, and this is a time of refueling and as he went out the drizzle had just started so he he struggled to get the uh the, the tires up to straight up to temperature because because of the drizzle whereas michael was still going around on his hot old tires and um that that enabled him to come out i think i can't remember three or four laps later when he stopped it enabled him to come out just in front and that was it he cracked it and from there that was that was that was the beginning of ferrari's run which you know, would go on uh, to define a whole era, but that that was it. That that little bit of drizzle was the switching point between those two eras. Yeah, it's it's, it's difficult to say because any one race can be just a set of circumstances. But I, I always remember it because it was uh, the two races that we sort of tried to pull Jaguar back together again. We'd had a pretty torrid season with Eddie driving for us. You know, he had a good understanding of of the Ferrari from the year, from the the year before. Um, so it was quite interesting because you know we went we went to there. Qualified seventh with Eddie, um, and as far as he it was a second off the pace, but as far as he was concerned, you know, he was driving a better car than the Ferrari had the year before, and that's that's why you say there, Mark, you know, it was the start of Ferrari getting on top of of 
everything, the whole package and making it all work for him. That race was a was a big turning point for Ferrari, um, just in the fact that it, it, it sort of taught them confidence, I suppose, in everything and that they were going in the right direction. Um, knowing from, from Eddie how Ferrari operated from the year before um, was interesting, I suppose you might call it, because I don't think it was always completely black and white that, uh, that Irvine got the exact same car as Michael did. So, yeah, a change of, a change of direction, I suppose. But um, Ferrari dominated from there on in, really, for quite a long time. So it was one of those sort of situations where it, it was a big race for the, for the development of Ferrari. It's a significant race for Michael as well. When, uh, when Autosport magazine got Michael to choose uh, his favourite race for the relaunch of the Race of My Life feature, that ran back then. Michael chose this race, so it obviously meant quite a lot to him as well. But let's move on with another Jordan question for Gary. Peter Foster asks, why is it that Jordan couldn't partner anybody with Rubens Barrichello in 1993? They seem to bounce between having big names of the time to relative nobodies and then promising young talents. So for context here, Barrichello's teammates over the course of 93 were Ivan Capelli, Thierry Bootsen, Marco Apicella, Emanuele Nespetti, and of course, by the end of the year, Eddie Irvine. So Gary, give us the inside story. What was going on? Um, well, there was nothing going on that I really knew about. I mean, we, we obviously, uh, was, being a small team, there was um, financial restrictions uh, as to who you could have and who could bring some money and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I think we started the season with Ivan Capelli uh, and Rubens um, as clear... Uh, candidates for the season. I mean, they they were there, they were chosen, and uh, it was part of making that all work. I think we got some money from Marlborough for to, to take uh, Capelli and and uh, Rubens. So there was there was money behind it, but it wasn't the driving factor for those first two. But Ivan never really sort of seemed to recover from his getting fired by Ferrari. You know, I think. I think when he hit his head on the wall in Montreal, I think it was turn four, that uh, fast left-hand chicane, and he caught the curb there and the car sort of tipped up and he banged his head on the wall. And uh, many, many people say he was never the same person after that. Um, difficult to say. I didn't really know him that much uh, before that. Obviously, I, I met up with him in Formula 3 and Formula 3000 and stuff, but never in an F1. And he showed in the Leighton House that he obviously had the talent. But he never really come to terms with his, his Ferrari drive. Um, and obviously getting sacked by Ferrari two races from the end of the season meant that he was trying to build up that career. But from day one with us, I never felt there was somebody in the car that was going to lead us or take us anywhere. And then obviously he had a big shunt in uh, South Africa. And um, I think he, he didn't qualify at the next race in Brazil or something. So it was one of those sort of difficult situations. And, and then, you know, the change was made because of sponsorship pressure. And, you know, Terry Bootson arrived. And Terry was, was strange because he couldn't, I mean, really interestingly, he was too big for our car. The car was quite a small package. Um, and Terry was too big for the car. To fit him in the car was, was an absolute nightmare. But he got in there. And at Donington, I think he drove exceptionally well for, this, for the conditions, for the situation that he, he was in. Um, at that time, we, we were we used a, or we were developing an electronic gear change, um, and we were having some reliability problems with it for for very strange reasons. But that's a, another V10 episode, probably. It could fill the whole V10 episode, to be honest. Um, 
But Terry drove very well with a manual gear change. And then we converted the car up a new seat back and it moved a few bits and pieces around in the chassis because we had time to do it. And he never, ever, he never, ever sort of drove like that again. You couldn't just see that commitment. And I think Hungary was, um, he finished, I think he finished ninth maybe in Hungary or eighth or ninth. Um, and he came in after the race. And, you know, Hungary, it was 30-odd degrees. And there wasn't a bead of sweat on him, you know. And, and I said to him, you know, you surely shouldn't be a bead of sweat on your brow after a drive around this place. Oh, I don't sweat. Um, he was looking for his retirement um, payment and, uh, you know, early retirement, I suppose you might call it. And he, and he worked on that, really. And, and he got it at the end of the day. And then and then from there on in, it was a, a fallout of smaller drivers, lesser drivers that might bring a, a few um, dollars to the budget type thing. The car wasn't good, and it took us until, I think it was Estoril, before we sort of got on top of the problem. Um, and sort of fixed it. And by the time we got to Japan, the car was in a reasonable state, and, and Irvine showed that it was you know it was capable to score some points. Yeah, a classic uh, Eddie Jordan uh, revolving door of drivers when when you need a bit of cash and you're struggling at the back of the grid, perhaps. But let's get on to uh, what Gary picked out earlier as his favourite question on this list. And we had more than one question about this situation. Racing Steward asked if Ligier were using a Benetton B195 with a Mugen engine in 1995, and winning F104 left a question in a review asking why those two cars were so similar. So before I throw to Gary, I should say that Flavio Briatore brought this up on his Beyond the Grid F1 podcast with Tom Clarkson, and Flavio actually brought it up completely unprompted. There was no question along these lines. He, he of course, owned both teams at the time, and reflecting on that, he said, every race after the race, my car was taken to pieces by the FIA because I decided to have Benetton help Ligier like everybody else has done before. Every race, our car and Ligier's was taken to pieces to check they are not the same. Our teams were the last one to leave every race because of the inspections by the FIA. And we mentioned earlier in this series that one of the reasons John Barnard fell out with Benetton in 1991 was because Briatore wanted to, in John's words, have Ligier effectively run Benetton bits. So if you want to hear more about that side of the story, check out our Canada 91 episode. But Gary, the floor is yours. Jordan was a midfield rival of Ligier in 95. So were you particularly upset by what could be perhaps described as a Benetton in, in blue French clothing? Um, yes, I think we were quite upset because... You know, one of the jokes that we used to have was the fact that they didn't have to bring um, spare noses for each car because they could just use whatever was in the pit lane. You know, Benetton <laughs> could use the Ligier one, and Ligier could use the Benetton one. You know, for sure there was differences in the car. There always will be differences in the car. Uh, you know, in reality, we're not far away from that now. It's a bit like Racing Point last year and, and Mercedes last year. You know, that when you take a quick visual look at it, the cars are the same. But obviously the detail is not the same. So you get into it. Each, each team makes its own car. But the visual, the, the overall visual aspect of it means that they, you know, they look very, very similar. And I think Ligier and, and, and uh, Benetton were like that that year. The, the problem is, you know, getting upset with it isn't something you can do. You have to hope that the regulations cover these sort of things. You can't, as an individual team, you can't go in there and start shouting because there is no point. There's a regulations written and they're supposed to be respected, and you have to let the governing body um, govern. 
and, and make those decisions because if each individual team was to stick its nose into everything, you would never get anywhere. So we, at that point in time, allowed that to happen. And I think what Briatore is saying, yeah, it's true. Um, you know, they were inspected quite often, but what is the same? You know, this is the problem. What What is actually the same? It's a very difficult thing. And I think Barnard's right as well. You know, he fell out with Benetton because of it. Um, he didn't want that his his knowledge to go anywhere else, and and John was very John Barnard was, was very very determined that everything he did was top secret, hush hush. You know, it was it was more, it was special, more special than anybody else would ever have, and he had to keep control of it. So that those those parts that he had been party to would have gone off to another team, and they would have, you know, learned from John Barnard. Um, which is, yeah, it is the way it works, but it's not really the way it works. But uh, as I say, the, the, the big thing is you've got to rely on the governing body. The governing body makes the rules. And at all the time through my career in Formula One, I've had questions about some stuff that, that we either protested or we questioned or we looked at. And the result, the answers, when you got it back from the FIA, were not, they were manipulated to make it that the FIA was always right. You know, no criticism of FIA, it's a tough job because there's, there's 10 teams out there and probably, you know, 2,000 engineers trying to find solutions, grey areas to everything that goes on at the moment. Um, so no criticism of FIA, but, you know, sometimes you have to stand up and believe in what's real and what's black and white. And I think that the Ligier, at, at that time, you, you could have taken the nose off the Ligier and put it on a Benetton and it would have fitted you might have to change the stripes a little bit here and there, but it wouldn't have been too far away. Yeah, Mark, it's interesting, isn't it? Gary mentioned there, we've seen over the years and over the years since so many cars where you could say, mm, that looks quite close. And this is before Racing Point last year. You always saw cars, you thought that they've copied as much as they can from this car. You can think of Toyotas and Saubers that started to look like Ferraris in the 2000s, that sort of thing. But I find it interesting that we had a clutch of questions about these cars specifically. So do you think the Benetton and Ligier example from 95 is perhaps one of the more extreme ones? Yeah, I think probably was. I know that um, Alan Pross has got on record as saying when he took over the team, um, he, he found basically just a as a race team. He didn't really have a, a design and development and department and uh, he had to sort of double the size of the team pretty much straight away because uh, they, they needed a new car. Um, so I, yeah, I think it was pretty clear that with the, what, what the basis was, they, just, they, they probably got around the, the letter of the regulation, let's say. Um, but yeah, it, it's always happened. I mean, it, it happened before then as well, didn't it? It happened with the, the infamous Arrows and Shadow, which were the, the same car and Arrows had to um, subsequently, uh, after a court ruling, come up with a, a different car, which wasn't as good. Um, there was a 79 Tyrrell, which was absolutely the same car as the 78 Lotus um, 78. Um, so yeah, it, it's not it's not a new thing, and it's um, you know it's still it's still happening to, to this day. It, it's it's just where you where you draw the line, really. It, but I, I don't think there's any um, I don't think there's any sort of darker side to it. It's just it's just the, the situation that uh, a team might find itself in, it might just be a shortcut to uh, respectability while it builds up its own resources. 
I've, uh, in my time in Formula One, many, many years ago in the 70s, we actually came back to the to the track in Sweden. Um, and at that time, we were using a truck and a, a, an awning. And we saw a light underneath the awning. So we switched the lights off in the van we were driving and, and walked down there, went underneath the awning. And there was a team owner and a technical director or whatever, like, chief designer at that point in time. Um, with a tape measure measuring up the rear suspension geometry on the on the on our Brabham BT forty four B, so it was uh, it's quite <laughs> interesting. It's never been different. You know, people will do all sorts of stuff. Um, it's just the way it is, I suppose. But you know, the, as I say, my argument about it is if the rules exist to to stop that sort of thing happening, then you have to implement those rules. And it will it only take once for people to learn that it's not you know it's not the right way to go. We all copy, you know, when I was designing parts, we all looked at everybody else's solutions, questioned why that would be, tested it probably in the wind tunnel, found out it was actually worse, and, and then went your own way. But you might have taken a, a little bit of a hit, a little bit of an idea from it, but that's not what I call copying. That's, that's what, you know, that's about, that's in public domain stuff. But, but doing stuff behind getting drawings, any of that sort of stuff. And that, again, is, it's not like two people chatting down the pub. It's about, you know, actual physical numbers, papers, drawings or whatever. So that has to be stopped because I think it is, you know, the team should be independent. I'm not saying there shouldn't be crossover parts, the stuff that doesn't matter. That, that's good, you know, but uh, as far as what we see, the, the aero surfaces of the car, they should be different and there have to be a degree of difference in them for them not to be the same. Mark's point about Alain Prost there is interesting as well. And in fact, I think it explains something else Flavio said where he said, oh, I sold the team to Alain Prost and, uh, and the, with really good cars and really good equipment. And then, uh, and then as Prost took it over, um, they made it a lot worse. And I guess that's because of what Mark outlined there, that Prost had to start doing it all for themselves. But let's finish with a question about Mika Hakkinen and Kimi Raikkonen. Mark, Sammy P328 left us a five-star review. Thank you, Sammy. And also asked, why did Mika Hakkinen never return from his sabbatical and could he have won the 2003 title if he returned? Or by then, was Kimi already the better driver? I think just one word, really, desire. Um, Mick had never made any secret of the fact of just how much it, a mental toll it took from him winning those two titles and fighting for that third one. And when he stopped at the end of 2001, he just he, he was he was finished. He was mentally finished. He, he was exhausted and he, he didn't want to do it anymore simple as that and he'd had a near-death experience a few a few years before and then he had a big shunt which he got away with at the beginning of 2001 and you know, I'm, I'm sure it brought back all all the bad memories and he just needed a rest and he needed to know how much he really wanted it and, and that's 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 why he said it was a sabbatical because he wanted to leave the way open <clears throat> if he did feel that desire to come back and we're, you know, everybody's wired up differently and different things affect different people in different ways. But he found it very, very mentally taxing to, to, to be going bat to bat with Michael Schumacher for three straight years and, and he'd had enough of it. Um, and I guess the answer to why he didn't come back was he didn't, he didn't feel it. He didn't um, want to commit himself to that level of, of, of intensive energy anymore I mean, I mean came back and did some dtm racing but it was it wasn't on the same commitment level of commitment as a, a formula one program would have been and so if you don't have that 
desire. No, you, you, you're not going to be able to fight for a world championship. It doesn't matter how talented you are. And he was one of the most talented drivers that there's ever been in terms of raw speed. Um, but no, if you can't match that up to the, the real dig deep stuff that you're going to have to do to, to win a championship, then no, you, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have been uh, in a position to win a title. Yeah, and I think uh, Mika has said a few times that really the sabbatical was Ron Dennis's idea just to keep that door open, as you said, Mark, just in case the year off recharged the batteries. But I suspect what you described there was the real picture that Mika was done, and he knew he was, and by then Raikkonen was. The coming man so we'll leave it there for part one of our series finale thanks to gary and mark for piling through as many questions as we could fit in we had over 120 submitted in the end through this series uh, so we could in fact probably dedicate the entire next series just to answering your questions but before it comes to that we'll see how many more we can fit in of the remaining ones next time when series three comes to a close <laughs>